And we're live. Welcome to another episode of the Friendly Ex-Muslim Podcast. We bring you conversations from ex-Muslims and non-believers regarding the effect of religion on our world and how to tackle the harmful dogma without falling into bigotry. Today, I have a special guest. His name is Muki. And I found Muki on a stream with Ali Rizvi on Ali Rizvi's Professional Novice. So Ali has a platform where he talks about all different things and he was having a conversation with Muki about about masking coronavirus and all that stuff and then another another episode about single dad parenting which I found also very interesting so let's let's talk about this because Muki how are you feeling uh, apparently you just survived Rona <laughs> so what, what happened to you how are you feeling what's going on I'm, I'm feeling okay maybe still a little bit of brain fog so um, you can indulge me <laughs> have a, a lively conversation dis despite that. I want to thank you sincerely for uh, the privilege of being on your friendly ex-Muslim channel. Consider me the friendly current Jew. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm at your disposal this morning for questions, good interactive dialogue. Awesome. And uh, awesome. yeah, yeah. So um, I did have a breakthrough case of the coronavirus. It, it hit quickly and unexpectedly. And unfortunately, during uh, a family trip to Miami, so it short circuited the entire affair. And uh, I was quarantined for about a week. I'm still staying at a, at a family friend's house and uh, recuperating. Oh, geez. Well, well, thanks for coming on, despite, you know, um, just having this big issue. So so to introduce Muki, Muki is a secular agnostic American Jew, and he's a first, first, first generation, first first generation Jew. Yeah. So can you tell us about that, like about your family background a little bit and uh, maybe upbringing? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm 57 years old and uh, the son of a Hungarian Jew born in Budapest. That's my father. He was born in 1928. And uh, my mother is from the Transylvanian region of Romania, which was part of Hungary before World War I, and then annexed back to Romania as part of the uh, Versailles Treaty. So um, I am 97.2% Ashkenazi Jew, according to 23andMe. So consider me a, a thoroughbred, and we can talk a little bit about what that means in terms of genetics, race, and uh, and all those genotypical mm -hmm. kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, so your family I, was uh, pretty. You you mentioned to me earlier your family was not religious. No, no, they were um, extremely secular. Mm -hmm. So um, my father noted that despite the fact that they were non-practicing and Jewish, um, you know, at least in terms of identification, they were still trying to kill them all, and it was a source of tremendous frustration for him. Um, my mother similarly was raised in a very secular, non-practicing household. Uh, but that's not to say that the Spitz clan and the Insa clan uh, were respectively non-religious throughout. So if you look back a generation or two prior, uh, the religiosity, the sense of tradition and ritual dominating life probably proportionately increased with every prior generation. So as you look back into the history, the Hungarian and eventually German roots on my father's side, the Romanian, Hungarian, and Polish roots on my mother's side, the further back you look, the more ostensibly religious and practicing my family became. 
But by the point in the 30s and 40s, at the brink and throughout World War II, both sides of the family were highly assimilated, secular, business people, intellectuals, and their sense of self-identification with their Judaism was essentially limited to identity. They self-identified as Jews and most significantly the society in which they were raised and eventually persecuted and almost killed saw them as Jews as well, despite the fact that their ideology had already to the point of almost being inconsequential, at least so, to them. So your your family members were in the Holocaust then, were affected by it? Yes, and I think that's, that's significant for this conversation. I know that identity politics is a big deal, um, a contentious issue politically now, both on the left and on the right. But um, I think it's a useful lens through which to view this conversation. So uh, my father had harrowing experiences in Budapest. The Germans rolled in and pretty much annexed the country in a friendly way in March of 1944. And his odyssey began at the age of 16. It lasted until the end of the war. He was a displaced person. And we can talk about some of experiences, but suffice to say that it's miraculous. It's highly unlikely that he was even able to survive. My mother's experiences on the Romanian side of the border were far less harrowing and intense, but she was none, nonetheless under a tremendous amount of risk, too. She hid in a barn for months. And on both sides of the family, I think it's accurate to say that 80, 90 percent of all of our relatives were killed at some point during the war and especially wow. at the latter half of the war. That's so incredible. when I speak now about Judaism, a sense of identity, um, when our conversation rolls into the area even of politics, of Israel, of Zionism, um, I think it's worthwhile to look at it through the lens, because as we'll see, um, part of the rationalization and justification for Israel's existence and um, perhaps some of the apologetics about their behavior is oftentimes founded in this notion that six million Jews have died. And in a sense, that gives Israel carte blanche. So again, uh, further into our conversation, we can explore that topic and its ramifications. But I think it's important for your listeners and, and viewers to see my point of view through the lens of being directly impacted by the Holocaust uh, in terms of kind of uh, what they call generational memories, uh, in terms of my father's relationship with me, some of my mother's challenges. Uh, there was a direct impact of this historically significant and devastating event for the Jewish people, but directly with regard to my own life. And uh, I think being clear about that helps this conversation um, and is very forthcoming and necessary in terms of candor and transparency in terms of my point of view about these issues. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot to take in. Your family suffered so heavily. I can't even imagine what that's been like, you know. Um, although there was some trauma as well in my family, you know. Um, Idi Amin kicked out all of the Indians. You know, he was threatening to kill all the Indians in Kenya, in Africa in general, Tanzania, and my family was affected, but um, not so badly as your family. And so, you know, I I really you know I'm sorry for you know what happened to your family and you know nobody should ever have to go through what you know your family went through. Obviously, war continues to this day, and kind of ironically, you know, we're gonna talk about some of these things. How how is it possible that 
you know, like the some some of those, you know, people that the families of victims have now become, you know, perpetrators of similar sort of action. So, you know, it's amazing to me that you actually went through this and you're able to actually say some of the things that you're saying, which is which is astounding because it means that you're able to divorce, you know, um actions of others versus how we should behave, you know, impact of others on you which is actually the most purest way to be a humanist, which is, you know, despite regardless what maybe, because, you know, it's all too easy to, you know, we hear in history of how certain people would fight for generations and generations. I know in Islamic, even in, this, in the history of Islam, you know, this is the one that comes to example, that comes to mind. There, there were two tribes that fought for many, multiple generations over the camel, over a woman or something like that and they don't even know why they're fighting anymore right it's kind of like that example of um how there's a there's a there's this experiment that researchers do where they'll there's a cage and what they'll do is in the cage there's a bunch of monkeys or some enclosed area it doesn't have to be a cage i mean and they'll they'll put a banana on a on a ledge or something and then what they'll do is if any monkey goes up and gets the banana all the monkeys will get shocked right you i'm sure you've heard this right and yeah. then what happens is eventually what they do is they they'll replace the monkey one at a time, right? So then eventually you have a bunch of monkeys that nobody knows. None of them was there for the shocking, but they'll all beat each other up if anyone goes on the ledge and they don't even know why they're doing it. They're just fighting, right? Because they've been trained, right? And so I, I feel like we humans, we also do this. We have this tendency of sort of, you know, not forgiving, not letting go and holding this, you know, this, I mean, it's quite understandable. Like if you have generational trauma and you're, your ancestors, it's, I mean, how can you, you know, if you're, if you're coming from a certain background and you're, you were ethnically cleansed by a certain people, it'd be hard for you even to talk to the descendants. For me, I know I'd be, it'd be very difficult if my family members were harmed by a certain group, it'd be difficult for me to stand up for their rights, right? And, and to say, well, these people, they shouldn't be oppressed because you, you still hate them in a sense, right? Or you can, you might, you might hate them. It's difficult to overcome that. So, um, that's amazing if you're able to do that. I, I just think that's 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 wow, that's great. Uh, but yeah, sorry for what you went through and your family went through. And how you know, let's let's go on from there and see where, where does this take us. How, how does yeah, where, where yeah, take you make terrific points about trying to separate the instinctive tribal passions that are arguably programmed into us as humans so that we could survive, almost in a social Darwinian point of view, right? When for most of our history, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years prior to any technology, any civilization, we were roaming in bands of, who knows, 20 to maximum 120 people. And our behaviors were likely wired into us to enable us to survive, including very much an us and them kind of mentality. So um, overcoming this sense of instinct, I think, is the path forward and is viable not only on a personal humanistic level, but is so necessary really for the survival of the species. My father, just to cite a counterexample, he endured all of these hardships. He was beaten up. He was assaulted. He was in solitary confinement. He witnessed um, a tremendous amount of death and atrocities, and he left this experience by internalizing them. 
So I used to call him the Jewish Dirty Harry. He hated everybody. <laughs> he had uh, all the tendencies of, you know, just um, un unabashed racism, prejudice, bigotry. He was like uh, the Archie Bunker of the Jews. So his emotional way of dealing with the fact that he was victimized and the family was almost destroyed uh, came out as an interjection of all of this negativity. He embodied that which he hated. And to your great point, I think a lot of the ongoing debates and misunderstanding, regardless of ethnicity, regardless even of point of view, erupts from this raw, instinctive need to belong at any cost. And it short circuits the mind in ways where the mind is just a tool for the passions of the heart. And not all the passions of the heart are pretty. We have an opportunity to maybe sit, rationally dissect this stuff, deconstruct who we are and what we want to do and put things in perspective. And hopefully this conversation helps propel that conversation forward. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so to continue on with what you were saying about uh, your family's pretty secular and agnostic, we wanted to talk about the archetype and, uh, and you wanted to tell, tell me about Mamet, David Mamet, and how that, you know, the paradox, how is this paradox find, defined? Yeah. Um, to give a, just a little bit of backstory and context, uh, David Mamet is an acclaimed and much deserved playwright, director, producer. Uh, you could Google him and the page will explode with his um, accomplishments and output. And um, in 2006, he wrote uh, a slim tome uh, where basically he characterizes much of what we're talking about and the personality and profile of who you see before you right now and characterizes an individual exactly like me as being the wicked son. So for Jews, the second most significant holiday is Passover or Pesach. It, it occurs more or less in alignment with Easter and pretty much for the same reason. It's the season of rebirth, the rekindling of all the energy and passion of the year. And it essentially retells the story of the Jews enslaved in Egypt uh, the 10 plagues and God's, you know, freeing of the Jewish people, uh, culminating in 40 years wandering in the desert, the 10 commandments, and then all the great things to follow, right? So the Jews celebrate every year. We take it extremely seriously. It's highly ritualistic. It's a very involved dinner with symbol and ritual and storytelling and basically a bringing together of the family in this celebration and evocation, if you will, of what it means to be Jewish, who we are as the Jews, and what ultimately we need to do with ourselves for you know the year to follow. So in essence, one of the stories that are told at the table is the story of the four sons. And the four sons break down pretty much like this. There's the wise son. And the wise son asks a host of questions ostensibly designed to get at what the meaning of the holiday and the ritual and the tradition is all about. And the intent of this wise son is to better understand what we do and how we do it to 
rekindle the community, to bring us even closer together, and in a sense, to energize our faith in our sense of togetherness as the Jewish people. Okay, that's that's the wise son, the embodiment of the good kid, asking the right questions, pat on the back. Then there's the wicked son. The wicked son sits right next to the wise son, and he asks a bunch of questions too, but he's not asking for the meaning of what those rituals and traditions are to bring us together. He's asking what the meaning of these rituals and traditions are for the people at the table. And his implicit motivation isn't to bring the Jews together, but to tear them apart. His essential point of view is that this is all bullshit. It's a waste of time. Why are we sitting here with parsley and salt water and hard boiled eggs? This is silly madness. Even if the enslavement of the Jews happened, it was thousands of years ago. What's the point of all this? Let's get on with our lives. And lastly, the final two sons, there's the simple son. He has trouble even just asking questions. He's trying to wrap his head around, you know, the complexity of what's going on before him. And there's the ignoramus son who can't even ask questions and you just kind of hope for the best and include him anyway, because he's a Jew. <laughs> so I look at myself through the lens of Mamet's characterization in this book of the wicked son. So Mamet would see my point of view, I think in all fairness to Mamet, as what he would consider the self-loathing Jew. The Jew who has taken on the burden, and in my case, my own Holocaust surviving generational trauma has taken on the anti-Semitism of the world. Everyone hates the Jews, and therefore, I hate myself. <laughs> and he goes through a series of vignettes in classic Mammoth style. He has a very succinct, super intelligent, super intense and dense prose style. And he shares one vignette after another of the embodiment of the wicked son, its implications for the Jewish people, and the sense of danger, the danger of atheism, the danger of this secular approach, the danger of assimilation, and the potential destruction of what it means to be a Jew, not so much because of the hatred of the world, but because of bastards like me who don't get it who's rebellious for the sake of being rebellious, who's obnoxious, selfish, indulgent, and I am part of the problem mm. here. And You're not he's towing the party line. Out. He's reaching out to motherfuckers just like me. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you, you got it wrong, buddy. If you only smell the light, your life would be better, and the Jewish people would have a mm. much more clearly defined and successful destiny. Uh, like, okay, you're not, not you're not you're not towing the party line so to speak no no yeah. no again the wicked son the bad son it's an mm -hmm. internalization of the anti-semitism and hatred and that's the reason why i take a more humanistic position oh. that's the reason i'm less forgiving of whatever israel for example mm. happens to do that's, well, that's the reason <laughs> that I deny the existence of God or its relevance and that I don't practice the rituals. I don't self-identify in this traditionally Jewish way. Shame, shame, shame.
<laughs> okay, well, there's a lot that. Why do you? Okay, so there's a lot of things I want to talk about there, and be, I think before we get to this, just as an aside, because it came to my mind because you did bring it up. Why is there so much hatred for Jewish people? Like, what is okay? So I have an opinion on this too, and you know, some people don't like my opinion about how dogma is, you know, part of the problem. But like, if you go back to, for example. Okay, I'll just tell you what I think. I, I think, you know, and then you can tell me what you think, whether I'm right or wrong. I think that, okay, Christianity, I think, contributes to the problem. You know, the Jews are seen as the killers of Jesus in some extent. And I know some translations of the Bible, I, I forget whether it's a King James one or uh, worse than others. And I do know that if you go back to the, you know, earlier Gospels, there was, you know, an effort to try to make it appear... Um, I, I, but Ehrman talks about this. And I'm not really recalling the exact details, but there was a, there was an effort to try to take the blame away from the government and put it on the Jews or something like that. And again, I'm not an expert on this. The, the other thing I found is Islam as well actually perpetrated this trope or made it, you know, spread it even further. Again, this is my opinion. I do think, you know, the Quran and the Sunnah, you know, cause or encourage anti-semitism and i believe that because i've read the quran i've been a muslim and it doesn't say nice things about jews i believe that muhammad had his you know he made an effort at trying to make peace with these people that he considered so that the Arabs, you know the polytheist Arabs, the people of his tribe and his you know his people were were not learned people. They were known to not read and write or whatever. And they, from what I understood, they used to look up to the Jewish people. They used to see that the Jewish people had like a civilization. They were well read and they had books, right? The people of the book. Islam calls them the people of the book. Whereas the, the unlearned people, that was Muhammad's tribe and his, you know. So he wanted, you know, even early Islamic um in early Islam, Muhammad used to pray towards Jerusalem. So there was an effort, an active effort made to, you know, try to get the Jews on his side. When he went to Medina, from Makkah to Medina, there was a bunch of Jewish people there. And, you know, he was appealing to them. He wanted them to basically accept him as a prophet. And eventually they didn't. They didn't accept him as a prophet. They said, no, you're not a prophet. Um, and you're a fraud, basically. Right? I mean, it didn't in so not so many words but you know basically they didn't accept him and you can see the tension there where you know muhammad what eventually when you read the hadith and the hadith of course came later but you know if you want to go by the the traditional narrative meaning accepting the hadith as historic you know historical even though they're not but like going by what what the mythology says you know you hear things like there's a hadith that says the jews I think it's even in the Quran, actually. They they recognize him like they recognize their own sons, meaning they recognize Muhammad like he's a real prophet, but out of the arrogance, they rejected him, right? And the, the same thing is said about the, the polytheists. They rejected Muhammad and, you know, the arrogant, disbelievers are arrogant, you know, we just don't want to submit, that that sort of theme. But it's, it's directed at, specifically at Jews. And, you know, and I remember speaking to, 
some of my friends and they would say things like, yeah, they know the truth, but they don't want to accept it. You know, nonsense like that. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, but how do you, how can you be in a situation like that? That doesn't make any sense. But anyways, that's the claim. So I think after this hostility was created, you know, it, it's the, the religion, I think, unfortunately makes the situation worse. I think because of dogma and we can get to Israel later, but I think the dogma makes the situation Israel worse. And you know this way better than me. So I'll let you talk about that. But like, I, you know, I went on a bit of a rant there, but what do you think? Why is there so much anti-Jewish hatred in the world? Anti-Semitism, I guess. What is up with yeah, that? Yeah. Well, let's, let's level set is, does the world hate the Jews or is that just a Jewish trope? I would think categorically based on, direct evidence in our own personal interpretation thereof, the world really does hate the Jews for the most part. I think that anti-Semitism does run rampant and I think it's, it's fairly pervasive and it's not just limited to the Arab world. It's in Europe. It's pretty much everywhere. So the question then becomes broader than just an edict from Muhammad or some kind of historical context, whether or not it actually really happened and whether or not it was chronicled accurately or not. So in answer to your question, we could dissect these touch points in religious and secular history and try to find an origin for this universal hatred of the Jews. But I look at it much more simply, and it's through the lens even of my career, which is marketing, PR, and branding. So you know how Coca-Cola is the real thing, and FedEx is when it absolutely positively has to get there overnight, and Avis tries harder, and the Jews, they control the world, <laughs> and they're greedy, and they can't be trusted, and etc 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 so i think the jews have a branding problem we for whatever reason have been characterized in this way and then we have reacted to that characterization and there's obviously sociological and historical implications for this brand um, you could say the jews isolated themselves because we're the chosen people or you could say that the societies in which Jews lived isolated them because of this branding issue. But the reality is, despite these causal eruptions and, and how we see the reasons for the anti-Semitism, I think it's categorically correct to say that it's pervasive mm -hmm. and that it's put the Jews in a position of being both on the defense and offense. We've been defensive in terms of, 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 of isolating ourselves to protect ourselves, basically. And it's been offensive in the sense where denied the ability to own land and, and, and prejudiced in this fundamental way throughout multiple societies. We have relied on our own wits and wherewithal to not only survive, but flourish. So we're, we're going to talk, you know, more about politics, Israel, and there's this tendency to dive deep into the details. Like, what's what's the origin of this stuff? Is there mm -hmm. the Balfour Declaration, this treaty, this battle, this incident? 
But I think that detracts from the more holistic reality that just as Israel is there and it's a fact, people hate the Jews and that's a fact too. And then the question becomes, well, what do we do with it? How do we react to it? And then how can we collectively really overcome this sense of bias, prejudice, and abuse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't yeah. mean to wiggle out of the question, but, <laughs> but it's so complex. And it's it is so complex. Yeah. That I don't know. You're just talking to, you know, this bald guy who just got <laughs> but, but yeah, I think for the sake of our conversation, it's it's you know, if we direct it along the lines of the holistic reality that we're facing, yeah. and then see how we how we respond to that. Rather than yeah, trying to good point. Find, find the reason for things which are, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's know, true. That's why do point. people do what they do? And then, <laughs> you know, why do some brands flourish and others flop? You know, yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, yeah. you know, it's it's good that you did acknowledge that it is it is a case that this is true. But, you know, whatever the reason is, you know, that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. And, you know, just as an aside, even I was trying to look up something as seemingly trivial as why is pork forbidden? Like, why don't Muslims obviously don't eat pork? But like, where did that come from? Well, that came from Judaism. Where did it come from there? It's not that simple. Like when you look it up, there's actually, it's actually complicated. It seems like there's some theories about, you know, agriculture and, you know, pigs don't give milk and don't give eggs and they require this much water per pig versus, you know, other animals. And then there's some social thing, hierarchy going on. And actually the meat might spoil faster. The, it's okay. that's what I'm th- I mean, at somehow. the end of the day, it could <laughs> yeah. really boil down to hygiene, um, yeah. virology before people really understood what the hell was going on. Many of the tenets of kosher, like keeping yeah. kosher and halal, and yeah. many of the traditions have their origins in basic hygienic practices. Pork might spoil faster than chicken or beef, so haram. maybe maybe that's it circumcision right before um before running water um it 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 got messy down there so Mm. the the idea of cleanliness was embodied in uh you know king david's tradition i always i always saw the circumcision as more like a ritual sacrifice like you're chopping off your you know what as a sort of like, you know, here you go, God, I can't, you know, you because you no longer kill animals. Well, you actually in Islam, you still sacrifice animals, but yeah. it's kind of like a ritual sacrifice of like, you know, your personhood or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Although you're, you're doing it for your kids. So it's not like you're sacrifice. I don't know. It's that's a whole other thing altogether. This well, it, it identifies the tribe. So yeah. the origin might be smegma is bad. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, so, so smegma, no good. <laughs> this idea of the chosen people of being distinct, it's hard to imagine uh, a more vivid and visceral way to characterize and mark your own people than to snip the foreskin of every male, right? So yeah. it serves multiple functions to, to do That's it. That's true. It is an and, identity marker yeah, and it yeah. is. So um, was it Jonathan Haidt mentioned in his book, The Righteous Mind? I believe it was in that book. I, I can't remember. He said that basically the bigger the sacrifice, the more valuable your group membership becomes. Meaning like, you know, religions tend to do this thing where you, in order to prove, you know, in order to be like a member of the tribe, there's some sacrifice needed. Otherwise, 
it's like a meaningless uh, membership, right? So, you know, there's different things. For example, in Islam, he even brings up the Hajj. It's this huge literal thing you have to do. It takes sure. a lifetime. The pilgrimage. The pilgrimage. Yeah. You got to pack it up at least once in a lifetime. You know, one of the fifth, one of the five tenets of, of Islam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the five tenets of Islam. Do, yeah. the, do the do the Hajj, you know, and yeah. well, look at Christianity. The essence of Christianity is the notion of sacrifice. God mm -hmm. so loved us that He brought His one and only Son and sacrificed <laughs> Him. Right? That, yeah. That's pretty strong, man. And you know, the <laughs> yeah. the Jewish God is a vengeful ass kicker. You know, you do anything wrong, and He's going to bring the hammer down. <laughs> so it's it's sacrifice, but it's also judgment. And it's mm -hmm. control. It's ultimately yeah. about reinstating and reinforcing what it means to be a tribe, what it means to be distinct. And the mechanisms of control are, once again, sacrifice, but also punishment, right? Behave and you'll be rewarded. Be the wicked son and you'll be punished. <laughs> and, uh, and again, that we could ask why religion does what it does. What's fascinating from a, a Jewish perspective, and uh, I think this is a worthwhile tack to take too, is that the Jews are brilliant at separating ideology and these religious tenets from the identity of being a Jew. And there's no better example maybe than Woody Allen, who, uh, you know, is the, the consummate neurotic New York Jew. So his personal problems notwithstanding, uh, he was an individual who really embodied the sensibility of being boldly and unabashedly atheist, mm -hmm. not believing in any of this. But he's not the wicked son in terms of the characterization that Mamet makes because even though he rejects a lot of the foundational principles of what it means to be a Jew in a religious way, from an ethnic way, a cultural way, and an even a political way, he's very much a super Jew. And he's proud of it. And he hates Nazis. Mm -hmm. So there you go. You know, <laughs> who wouldn't? But again, it's through the lens of the super Jew who doesn't believe. Mm. And and what's fascinating is I think it's 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 pretty prevalent in in the Muslim world that the sense of religiosity, ideology and practice are inseparable from the everyday identity and reality of who you are and what you do. And and one of the paradoxes, and I'll bring up a few of American Jewry, is that we can reject all the tenets of Judaism rationally but emotionally we carry that through line in terms of our cultural beliefs and practices and also in terms of our politics and we don't see much contradiction in that it's a seamless transition from agnostic atheist to fervent zionist or identifying as being very Jewish and very proud and not really believing in any of the ideology mm -hmm. and even rejecting it. It's, it's yeah. kind of interesting and it could be a viable path forward for many of the religions that are struggling with that kind of identity crisis and opportunity for personal and collective evolution, if you will. 
Mm. You you bring up some good points, and I I want to emphasize this. This is interesting. Um, are you saying that it's okay to be non-religious and still be considered Jewish? It's not only okay, but it's pretty much standard operating procedure. I would say for a majority of American Jews, and this is what triggers a guy like Mamet too because he recognizes the danger of this. He, he flaunts and taunts this notion of the woke Jew, who's politically very liberal and humanistic, who does lip service to the ceremonies. They're, we call them also revolving door Jews. So the, oh, yeah? the, biggest, the biggest holiday of the Jewish year is the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur week and a half. Uh, Rosh Hashanah literally means the head of the year. And Yom Kippur means the day of atonement. And leave it to the Jews to take a celebration like the new year and infuse it with guilt and the need for redemption. <laughs> so you, you go to the synagogue, really, no matter what kind of Jew you are, you go to the synagogue two times a year and you pay all your dues for the rest of the year. You go on Rosh Hashanah and you're there a whole damn day. And then you wait about 10 days and then you go to Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. And the first day you go through all the rituals, the 10 days you atone for your sins. So you got carte blanche so you can sin again next year. <laughs> <laughs> and then on Yom Kippur, you fast. You're not allowed to eat for 24 hours from, you know, from sundown to sundown. Yeah. And you ask this ass-kicking, vengeful, judgmental God whom you can, can't even visualize. You, you, you can't represent him. You technically can't even say the guy's name because <laughs> yeah. competing tribes are going to take that name and they're going to do spells to steal the power <laughs> of your God. I think really that's where it comes from. So the Jews um, say Hashem, Jehovah, right? Yeah. Yahweh. It's yeah. the Tetragrammaton, yud heh vav heh. Uh -huh. And Hebrew does not have vowels, uh -huh. and and the and the Torah or the Old Testament is written without vowels. So oh. when you see the letters Yud Hey Vav Hey, we assume it was pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. Yahweh but yeah. We really don't know because it's a big ass secret. Uh, it could be Yah. <laughs> it could be Yahweh. Yeah, uh, who knows? But shh, <laughs> you, you don't want the bad guys to know because they're going to do spells <laughs> and take your dude. So, uh, that's interesting because Arabic also has this issue where the vowels are optional, and right. eventually they had to right. standardize the Quran and add the vowels because it wasn't clear <laughs> how yeah. to read it. Right? right. To people right. that are non-Arab, right. uh, Arabs right. can you know, um, you know, interpret the vowels, but others would have to yeah. like, you know. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Right. But to answer your question, I would say, again, a majority of American Jews are this revolving door Jew. They go, you know, once, twice a year, they pay their dues. They do lip service to a lot of what traditional or Orthodox Jews consider a day to day ritualistic belief and practice. And yet, to your point, self-identify very much culturally, racially, politically with their Jewish identity. Mm, and that's one of one of the interesting paradoxes of being an especially an American Jew is this dichotomy. And it's not a problem. Wow. It's actually seen as an advantage. So you can you when you go to the the synagogue and do people 
judge you for this in any way i mean like how is a community because i know i know jews in my in real life that have told me similar to what you said that you know my old boss was jew but he said i'm jewish meaning you know he's atheist but he's still jew right, right. um and and he would tell me that yeah people were okay with it in the community in the in the synagogue i almost said mosque and you know i i remember in high in university i had a roommate that was jewish and for Yom Kippur, he fasted. He did the fast, and he broke his fast on Guinness. Like so, he was like, he was one of those like rebels, right? Like he still yeah. fasted though, which was I don't yeah. know if he did it just for fun or what. But like yeah. I was like, oh, this is weird because I can't imagine a Muslim fasting and then breaking his uh, fast with like a beer. With, with <laughs> that a beer. would be like yeah, sacrilegious, yeah. right? Like, the like Jews are a little bit more moderate with booze. We don't yeah. really we don't really booze like wasps do, let's say, <laughs> okay. just the stereotype. But, you know, yeah. we got the Manischewitz. We're really yeah. bad with booze. You know, But you can only no drink kosher, right? Beer. Can uh, you drink beer? Is beer considered okay to drink? Or oh, is it yeah. Only yeah, as long as it's prepared in the way where it's deemed kosher. So it has to be kosher it, beer. It has to be kosher beer, okay. but it's okay. Yeah, there isn't uh, that that restriction that Islam has. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, Jews aren't really knows, known for their boozing. You know, yeah. it's again one of the cultural attributes of, you know, you got the drunk Irishman, but you don't so much have the drunk <laughs> Jew. It's just uh, just just how it shakes out. But yeah. we're good at making that separation. We're we're good at making that divide, and we do it politically too. Yeah. Um, one thing that was interesting fairly recently is um, Jews historically have been very much to the left. If you look at the civil rights movement, Martin mm -hmm. Luther King, right, uh, the revolution in terms of giving especially African-Americans um, everything from the right to vote to um, civic and, and civil equality. Uh, the Jews have been there. Right. Like, um, you know, Tom Wolfe joked about Leonard Bernstein thro throwing parties for the Black Panthers, right? So the, the Jews have been very much allied with ostensibly liberal civil rights causes and politically on the spectrum have been historically very much to the left, likely as a consequence of that. So despite being the elders of Zion and controlling the banking of the world, you've got the Wall Street Jewish power broker who will vote for Jimmy Carter. Okay. That's, that's been a salient characteristic of Jews, American Jews for decades. Now, fast forward to what I call the Jared Kushner Zionist Jew. So with the, with the ascendancy of Trump, there was almost an effortless flip, not on, not on the part of all Jews, but on enough of them to really call this out as a significant trend and also illustrate another paradox of American Jewry, which is, yes, I'm a humanist liberal. I'm for uh, you know, gay, lesbian, trans rights. I'm for equality, marriage equality, all the trappings of American liberalism, support women's right to an abortion, the list goes on and on. But move the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, ostensibly change our foreign policy so the United States is no longer at least seen as a more objective, unbiased, and balanced engine of Middle East peace, and essentially throwing in the towel, which is like, 
yeah, you know, we, we're with the Sunnis. We, we hate Iran. <laughs> we'll forge a treaty with Qatar and everybody else. And um, screw the Palestinians. They're not really viable. They're not even going to sit at the table with us anymore. All these hypocritical trappings of, you know, we're fair and balanced in the Middle East and we just want peace. <laughs> you know, none of that really matters. Let's roll our sleeves up and be honest. The United States and Israel are unilaterally allied. Um, the war is against the, 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 the common enemy of Iran. And, uh, you know, here we go. And I'm going to vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. And Trump had his own complexities and shenanigans and infuriated so much of the left. But many, many American Jews just enthusiastically flipped their political affiliation because of Israel, because of Trump's support of Israel, mm -hmm. and because of the engine of what he put in place with regard to, as I mentioned, shifting of the embassy and uh, establishing these Israeli-Sunni Arab treaties as a, as a vice against Iran, but also as a path forward, not oh. so much for a two-country a two solution, which never had real viability anyway, but a path forward with regard to staking the claim for Israel and, uh, you know, just um, expressing our not only our right to exist, but a future hmm. that's uh, more successful and more powerful. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. It's, one, it's, it's complex and interesting, but it illustrates how, you know, Jews tend to be very rational, calm, maybe not so calm. We mm -hmm. love, we love debate. We love argument. Mm -hmm. We love what would be considered the Socratic Alenkis, right? Like yeah. dive into the details and, work out the points and then get all revved up and then arrive maybe even at a solution or an answer together and analytically. Jews generally love this. However, mm -hmm. if at any point in the conversation you even whisper Israel, then eyes glaze over, everything changes. The entire trajectory of the debate basically stops in its tracks mm. and all reason and rationality and objectivity is immediately drained from the conversation. And that tribal instinct erupts and completely filters any capacity for conversation. It, it becomes a rallying cry of the right to exist the Holocaust, and fuck anybody who gets in our way. So what is what is the connection between being Jewish and being Zionist? If you're Jewish, do you have to be Zionist? Is it yeah. part of Jew being Jewish? Can you explain that to me? Yeah. So one of the central tenets of being a Jew was, was our right and our destiny and the historical foundation of Israel. So we, we are, we're taught that we're not just a people, but we're a race. We're taught Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which means hero Israel. Okay, the message is just for Israel. The Lord is our God. Okay, he's, he's our dude. Okay? <laughs> and the Lord is one. So similar to Islam, you know, Muslim, you know, Muhammad's degree, 
is, uh, you know, it's it's the assertion and declaration of an uh, omnipotent, right, omnipresent, monotheistic deity. Okay, it's it's not in this pantheon of multiple gods and myths, right? The, the pagan world of of diversity and and multiplicity of value. No, 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 no. There's just one. He's ours. Okay, he's our God. There's just one of them. And he's pretty much given us the promised land. It's built into the central mythology of who we are, why we're here, and where we're headed. So when, when the Babylonians burned down the temple and the Jews were forced into Exodus, right, that's built into our into our into our zeitgeist too but from birth pretty much jews are taught that israel is our right is our destiny and is a representation of everything we are and everything that we can and should become so that's why you've got this paradox and contradiction no matter how secular and reasonable and rational you might be as a person no matter how contemporary and globally humanistic you might be, and no matter how far to the left you might be in terms of civil rights, humanism, equality, even respect and defense of the downtrodden because Jews have been, because of the anti-Semitism, historically victimized. None of that shit matters when it comes down to Zionism. Because once again, six million Jews died. Why did they die? They died so there could be a state of Israel. So if you say anything negative about Israel or have any kind of problem with the status quo, that de facto, de facto makes you a wicked son. It makes you a self-loathing Jew who really doesn't understand the situation. And STFU, dude. You're privileged, you're American, you were born with a platinum spoon in your mouth. You have no idea what it was like to suffer. You have no idea what it was like to be persecuted and annihilated as a generation in Europe. And you certainly have no appreciation for what the Jews in Israel are dealing with, the degree of the threat, the existential threat posed by all those countries. And... Uh, and you're an asshole. You're a wicked son. And and that that's the dichotomy. And it's represented by Mamet in the book. And it's represented not only by him, but most of my brothers. And I would say most of my brothers and sisters in terms of what Zionism means, what Israel means, and why Jews have this paradox of being completely reasonable, rational, essentially mm -hmm. balanced people. Talk about anything. The theater, art. <laughs> business, Elon Musk, Facebook. Great. Talk to a Jew. He, he or she will have lots of opinions, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But mention Israel and whoop, that's it. It falls into this kind of dogmatic foundation, uh, whether we like it or not, and whether we even realize we're doing it or not. And that's part of my point of view here, which is... Yep. Go ahead. No, you please go ahead. How do you? How did you get out of that thinking? How? What made you escape the? 
Like, how did you get out of that rabbit hole? How did you see the light? How did you end up taking a perspective outside of like, because it sounds like, you know, this is something that every community has an, one issue with. And, you know, with with the Muslim community, you know, I've, I've experienced this as well that, um, you know, I, I think everybody has this sort of ability to have cognitive dissonance and to hold, to suspend the intellect when it comes to a certain point, a certain topic. How did you get out of that? How did you look at this rationally? You know, what uh, was my, my own development, my father, um, he was, he was agnostic, secular. He, he, he was very much an instinctive creature and very reactive and he had trouble articulating his thoughts. So he, I'm not sure what he believed. And I'm not sure he even understood. But the one thing that he did take away from being a survivor was this notion that tradition is important and that he needed to communicate what it meant to be a Jew and also implicitly transfer some of that trauma, but also some of that awareness of how he suffered and his family suffered and the people in Europe suffered to his firstborn American son. And he made me go to Hebrew school. So I went to Skokie Valley Traditional Synagogue uh, <laughs> in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, and it was it was an, a nightmare. It was Monday. <laughs> it was it was for all, I think four or five years from the tender age of seven or eight until we were bar mitzvahed. Uh, you know, every afternoon from three thirty in school until five thirty six. Oh, and most of us hated it. It was a series of, of what you'd expect. Yeah. Memorizing things <laughs> I wrote, indoctrination. They taught us how to read and write Hebrew. Yeah. Well, we went through all the rituals and the holidays, but it was re repetitious. It was devoid of any kind of explanation or backstory, any kind of real philosophy or any kind of intent, aside from just teaching us to be good Jews. No critical and, thinking. And we hated it. And at no. one point, even when I was very young, two, three years into this, the teacher was there saying the, the world is 5,700 and something years old. And then I've always been a, a science geek. And then I raised my hand and, she was like, <laughs> you know, Yehuda, you know, my Jewish name is Yehuda or Judah. What do you want? And I said, yeah. well, carbon dating puts the fossilized remains of dinosaurs and other creatures that tens hundreds of millions of years look at the geology of the planet look at the history of the whole fucking universe <laughs> five thousand seven hundred years when the when you know the, the the entire universe was created maybe 14 billion years ago according to the math and science what what is that why why is that the case and she got red in the face and she said the reason is because God put those fossils there and shut the hell up. <laughs> and, and at that moment, it's, it's kind of that was like my epiphany, which is like I looked around and I saw the unhappy kids all scrunched in their little chairs. And it kind of hit me that, you know what, maybe all of this is bullshit. This is just storytelling and mythology and control. And at that moment, I became the wicked son. Oh. It's like not not the meaning. I, like let's get into the meaning yeah. of you know all this you know shit that you're cramming down our throats. Yeah. But what's the meaning of all this to you, to me, to us? Why are we sitting here? What's the point? Mm. How old were you? I think uh, eleven at the time. 
Wow. <laughs> You're a bright 11 year old. I don't think I ever came back. I mean, I had maybe six months of religiosity prior to that, about a year yeah. earlier. I think right oh, yeah. when the hormones were kicking in, you know, <laughs> yeah. like hair, hair on, on the cojones, and then it just the hormones started to make my mind go. Yeah. And then I even reached the point where I was upset with my parents for not being more religious. And then I remember reading the Bible and taking it literally and then praying. That lasted about six months. <laughs> and then uh, so I know what that religious fervor is kind of like in yeah. this kind of like, you know, childishly pre-adolescent, adolescent way. But my sense of epiphany and awareness came relatively quickly and it never abated. And I've never been able to let it go and I never want to let it go. Because I think millions, billions of people throughout the planet, and I think this is a central theme of your streaming podcast right here, is that people are being bamboozled with these instinctive tribal reinforcing stories that are nonetheless pure, pure lies. There's, there's no historical foundation or limited historical foundation. Um, a lot of these have been created as mechanisms of control and instruments of belonging. Even the Jewish story of being enslaved in Egypt, Google it. There's no, repeat, no historical evidence that the Jews were ever enslaved in Egypt. Full stop. Full stop. There was yeah. a story about, you know, the Hyksos invasion and the Jews were foreigners and the Hyksos were there. And that when the Hyksos were overthrown and the Jews remained and then the Jews were enslaved, that that's been disproven. So the central tenet of, you know, the second most important holiday and the foundation for the four sons conversation is based on lies or it's based on just fanciful storytelling. Mm -hmm. So, and even the Exodus too, there's no evidence for the Exodus either, right? I don't think so. What yeah. the, what the hell does that mean? You yeah. know, and then, you know, history is written by the winners, but it's also more or less lost in the stream of conflicting data, incomplete records and just yep. human memory. What do we um, really know? Who the hell are the Jews? The, there's a book called uh, Bible Unearthed by Dr. Finkelstein, not the same Finkelstein we were talking about earlier. This yeah. is actual scientist guy, uh, geologist or archaeologist. And he's he's written that if there was an exodus, Jews wandering in the forest for 40 years, the archaeological evidence would be different. And he's like, there's no evidence whatsoever of this thing ever happening. It's just like you said, made up. Um, and this is what people and I think I think. You know, part of this is the actual scholars, the actual academics know this to be true. The people that have studied this, they realize that many of the prophets never existed. You know, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Jesus might have been a composite of a dozen different people. Mm -hmm. Right. Look at look at the very variation in the storytelling of, um, you know, the, the Gospels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the emphasis on the virgin birth is only in one. You know, yeah. the, the, what, what happens to Jesus from his infancy and early childhood until he's wandering in the desert and gaining enlightenment? What, what the hell was the guy doing? Right. Well, Who the hell was Jesus? The Quran has the answer to that. Jesus spoke as a baby. See? Ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the funny thing is we know where the Jesus speaking as a baby story came from. We, it came from uh, apocryphal, um, you know, for example, I think it's infancy gospel, the Syriac infancy gospel, which was a, 
um, available to Muhammad in, you know, so that story ended up in the Quran. Uh, but regardless, yeah, there is not, there is no good evidence for any of this. Um, I want to talk about what you said about instruments of control and belonging. And because I think that, you know, when it goes back to, when, when we talked about halal, I think this is part of it as well. I think that a lot of what we find in major religions are not actually for the benefit of the people, but are actually for the benefit of the founders of the religion or, for example, the people that implement the religion on others, the, ruler, the rulers. Um, Emperor Constantine, you know, Bart Ehrman says he was able to unite all of these various pagan tribes under one banner by using Christianity. Monotheism is useful. And obviously, Muhammad, he did the exact same thing. He took all of these tribes that were fighting each other over camels and this and that. And he made, you know, monotheism a way of uniting all of these people and created an empire out of it, which, you know, conquered many, many lands and became Islamic empire. Right. So I do very much want to I very much do agree that this is the purpose of it. When, when we talk about halal, I think it's less about um, purity, even though you do have to drain the blood and all that. And I think it's more about the pre-Islamic. So in pre-Islamic, Arabs used to do the same thing. They also used to slaughter, but they used to slaughter to the other gods. So Muhammad continued the practice, but instead of slaughtering to Hobal or Lat or Uzza, who were considered you know, the idols or the lesser gods, he said, no, no, we only slaughter to Allah alone, right? meaning the real God, right? Nobody else. And of course, I am the messenger of God, so you have to obey me. Um, would you agree with that characterization that like, this is how religion is used to, to control people? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just control, but in the case of the Jews, and this goes back to Mamet's point, it boils down to survival. Okay, if you don't have a long list of ritualistic practices that bind a community together behaviorally, if you don't have an ideology that's forged through a tribalistic assertion of self and community, and if you don't ingrain this generation to generation, and if you don't reinforce it with a strict tenet that you cannot interbreed with those who are outside your tribe, then in a sense, you are forging the ability to survive. So being a wicked son, and this is the one thing that infuriates Mamet and infuriates many of my Jewish brothers and sisters is, is that you toss in the towel, you assert that all these are arbitrary mechanisms of control, that the rituals are bullshit, the stories are a lie, and our real identity is on a personal basis and maybe culturally like you're Jewish because you like bagels and you enjoy going to the theater and you talk with your hands and you you tell self-deprecating jokes about your arch supports. You know what I mean? And you make sounds when you get older, right? It's like that if, if you limit it to just that, then the Jews will go extinct. And, and there's, there's a sense to that, which is what's the culmination of assimilation? That if we don't unequivocally support Israel and then throw them our money and resources and defend them as a nation state, self-identified as the proselytized and predicted an inevitable state of Israel in the future of the of the Jewish people, 
then we're doomed for extinction. So Mamet and many of my Jewish brothers and sisters see this as an existential threat. So the mechanisms of control that you describe are valid, but they're created for a reason. There's a reason Islam is as popular as it is. There's a reason that Christianity is as popular as it is. And because of the Jewish branding, as we've talked about it, right, because of the universal pervasive anti-Semitism and the threat to our very existence for millennia, Jews have no choice but to stick to their guns with their ideology, with their traditions, with their rituals. And if you reject these tenets, you not only reject your Judaism, but you jeopardize the survivability of the entire race. And that's no bueno. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that um, because of falling birth rates, we do have the, the issue that other societies are at risk of annihilation too. For example, Japan. Japan, oh, had, yeah. <laughs> despite the, you know, um, the, the fact that the, they live very long, they're very healthy and all that. They don't have kids. They're not mating. And so yeah. the, the population is skydiving. And as well, they don't have immigration because they have a very close culture. So then they yeah, have women, explicit- women don't want to, you know, do all the housework and work while their men are philandering and, you know, living in those sarcophagus, you know, drunk tanks at the airport. <laughs> and so, and, and yeah, Japan- 30 yeah, there's actually a document. Yeah, mm-hmm. of the, there's, actually Japanese docu- society, yeah. there's actually a documentary called No Sex Please with Japanese, right. where they talk about how the men they're not interested, even, even not just the women, the men, Japanese women have a hard time finding a partner because the men are they're just not interested in in getting married or having kids or anything. So it's a big problem, and they're not they're not like you know doing a part they're not involved in like oppressing people and killing people that but they're like yeah they're going- but look at look at the japanese um rewriting of history okay it makes texas look like uh you know a woke party <laughs> um the, the japanese if you look at japanese textbooks that they yeah. teach their kids yeah there was no invasion of china there was oh, no yeah. rape of nanking there was no uh forced enslavement of korea for 50 years Mm -hmm. they're literally rewriting history shamelessly and unabashedly so the the japanese have their own way of protecting Mm -hmm. themselves and reforging their history and the problems that you cite 30 40 percent are seniors the growth rate is plummeting the economy is struggling too. You know, in the nineties in the States, we were terrified that the Japanese would eat our lunch and take over, but but they, their credit ran out, you know, you know, and it's shifted from Japan to China. Now China is the big worldwide menace. No one really takes Japan seriously anymore because of these problems. And yet nonetheless, Japanese identity, the rewriting of history and their, their unabashed and zealous tribalism hasn't hasn't been negated at all they've got other issues to contend with right yeah so yeah that the the interbreeding is not one of them yeah it's not helping them yeah um i wanted to ask you what about what did jews do before israel like before 1948 is it just this longing for this mythical place that needs to be the established like because obviously israel wasn't a thing before is it just because the Holy Land, this, it's even before the state was there, it was still a longing to, for the Holy Land? 
because like yeah, you said, the mythology? Yeah, I, I think that it was built into us. Okay. Right? Um, but, you know, Jews didn't really speak Hebrew. Hebrew was kind of, uh, you know, a resurrected language. Jews in Europe, especially in Eastern oh. Europe, spoke Yiddish, which is uh, a pidgin of, of German in Hebrew. So, you know, this, this sense of, of identifying with the promised land was always a myth. It was like Santa Claus, <laughs> right? We, we, yeah. we, we all believed in it. You know, my, my, uh, my, my, my ancestry believed in it. And it was always like a hope that you would find the presence underneath the Christmas tree <laughs> delivered by this mythical creature <laughs> generation to generation. Uh, but it was equally illusory and it was just uh, a pipe dream. The, mm. the Holocaust give, gave it a sense of urgency and rose the issue to the realm of international attention. And then it turned into a, 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 a cause and, and, and a violent one. Yeah. Right. Moshe, Moshe Diane helped blow up the King David Hotel. It killed a lot of um, British soldiers as one example. The early Jewish freedom fighters trying to reclaim the promised land were seen as terrorists, right? So it depends. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. But suffice to say that the conflagration of history essentially through the Holocaust provided the rationale for Israel. And then it fuels a lot of the paradoxes that I'm describing in terms of our emotional reaction formation to Israel, Zionism, and uh, the legitimacy of Israel and the apologetics surrounding everything that Israel does. Right, right. So um, I do want to talk about that a little bit more. And then I have another question for you. Um, how did, how did, so you're saying that because of, you know, obviously the history, the Holocaust and everything that happened, it's become a sort of, you know, blank check that Israel can do any, Israel can do no wrong. Israel can do nothing. You know, whatever Israel does is okay. Even if, you know, they're like, bombing children on the beach or something like that like is that is that the situation i think yes yeah again not for all jews i yeah. don't want to stereotype and speak for all my brothers and sisters but a majority um it's that cognitive dissonance that i've described which is uh because of the historical context because mm -hmm. of everything that happened and essentially because israel is the size of vermont the state mm -hmm. of vermont its borders are fragmented and uh, often transparent. The demographics are equally fragmented and scattered. 74% of the population of Israel proper is Jewish, right? Leaving a quarter Arab and other, <laughs> right? Look at Gaza, look at the West Bank, look at the, uh, you know, Hezbollah on the north, Lebanon, uh, for a while, Egypt, uh, surrounded by enemies with uh, a mandate of wanting to be pushed into the sea by all their neighbors. Mm. So we can go on and on again about the, the justification for the creation of Israel, the contentious history, who actually deserves and should have the land. But that's, that's not something that I can and want to cover. Instead, yeah. I just want to focus on the fact that Israel does exist. Yeah, it's not it's not going anywhere, especially with its um, nuclear arsenal. Mm -hmm. So uh, so how, how do we deal with it? And then as an yeah. American Jew, how do you relate to it and why? 
And what's the origin of some of these opinions? And how can we all move forward in a way that's more humanistic and, and, mm -hmm. and acceptable to the bigger picture? So so here's a couple of interesting mm -hmm. things to talk about regarding Israel. One is, do you, do you think that the dogma is what is making this whole situation so unstable? Or do you think it's, obviously, it's it's complicated issue. It's been going on for hundreds of years. But, um, you know, what is making this issue worse, in my opinion, one of the things, at least, is the dogma, the fact that this this place, this piece of land that has the size of the state of Vermont, as you said, is considered sacred to so many people. The Jews have a stake on it. The Muslims have a stake on it. In fact, there are hadith or prophecies of Muhammad about retaking Jerusalem you know, you know, this was this was always in the sight of the Muslim empires that we want this piece of land. It's like monopoly, but this this is like one of the railroads or one of the you know one of the green cards. This is a, like a like a very important spot. We want this not because of its um, significance in terms of like it's not like a port or something. It's not like it's important for some trade route. It's not important. Yeah, no, no oil. No oil. <laughs> it's just it's just some arbitrary piece of land that's yeah. magically blessed. Right. And you need it. You ha you got to have it. The Muslims want to have it. The Jews want to have it. The Christians want to have it. Yeah. And so to me, it's it feels like this is actually making the situation worse. And if it wasn't for this dogma, well, maybe it wouldn't matter. W what do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great point. Seth Rogen was interviewed by Mark Maron. Uh, Mark Maron is a wonderful podcaster. Him and Joe Rogan basically trailblazed this whole podcast phenomenon. They started around the same time and mm -hmm. um, Mark Maron isn't as popular as Joe Rogan, who's the podcaster, but he's got an enormous following and has everyone from Paul McCartney uh, to uh, to whomever on his podcast. And he was interviewing Seth Rogan, who's a Jewish American playwright and actor. And they were talking about Israel. And Seth Rogan is a like minded, wicked son. He's a lot like me. And they brought up Israel and Seth Rogen made the, the, the very funny and poignant and kind of sad observation that you've got this group of people, namely the Jews. Everyone has hated them for thousands of years. They're scattered all over the planet. You kill millions of them and then you decide that you're going to you're going to take them and then you're going to move them to the most contentious region on the planet. <laughs> Right. You're going to you're going to forge the foundation of the state of Israel in this arid, horrible place that everyone nonetheless wants for all of these religious and ideological reasons. Yeah. And then you're going to lay a foundation. Which is essentially apartheid. You're you're going to push out the people who were there. I mean, it happens all the time. Mamet tries to justify it by saying, well, you know, look at the American Indians. The story of every country is one mm -hmm. of disenfranchisement and oppression and invasion. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, you do that. And then you create a society where these people that you pushed out have no real rights and are never really going to be given a state of their own because of the existential threat that that reality will pose on this country that you just took. And it's a country, as you point out, that the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims all want and are obsessed by. So to answer your question, 
you know, why so serious with regard to Israel? Well, the first few steps of a journey oftentimes forge a path for the entire journey ahead, right? Mm -hmm. The foundation yeah. that you lay for a project has implications that cascade for generations to come. And the foundation of Israel as a place where, namely, the indigenous Arab or indigenous, that's a loaded word. But anyway, the, the Arab population that was there before and that got displaced just aren't going to have rights. Okay. Yeah. How's that going to work out for you? How is that going to work long term? Mm -hmm. And the approach that Israel's taken is best encapsulated by their own phrase, we mow the lawn. It's an ongoing generational war of attrition founded on the reality, which to me is screamingly obvious, but is hypocritically always overlooked or not discussed, is the untenability and impossibility of allowing a true two-state solution. Why? It's because Israel is tiny, is because the boundaries are fragmented, and because the demographics are laid out in such a way that a fully armed Palestinian state is an unacceptable existential threat to Israel. So mm -hmm. I grew up with um, the Camp David Accords and an ongoing effort for peace in the Middle East. And we're, we're almost on the brink. We're, we're almost there. We're almost at the point where the Arabs and the Israelis have peace. And from the beginning, almost from my moment of epiphany, where I called bullshit on God putting the fossils in the ground, <laughs> I instinctively felt that I was being had. Why on earth would Israel ever enable the Palestinians to have their own state and to get their own standing army and military? It's never going to happen. So what we've seen for decades is this dance that has been played out, epitomized now by Netanyahu's frank and unilateral hegemony, if you want, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, we're not, we're not playing ball. We're going to build settlements. Fuck you. We're, we're not even going to allow the Palestinians to be at the table. And in ways, as sad as it is, that's kind of an honest reflection of the policy that's been there from the beginning. And this might sound radical and extreme, but I don't think so, man. It's like, look at the facts. The facts are that Israel is too vulnerable and too frail. And the foundation was created in such a way that it makes impossible this, this dream notion of the two-state solution everyone's talking about. And I'm not a self-loathing Jew. Um, I'm not projecting the anti-Semitism of the world. I'm not giving the Arabs the benefit of a doubt. Logistically, strategically, militarily, this just seems inevitable. Yeah. So going back to what I was saying in summary, the, the Jews mow the lawn. So pressure builds in Gaza. There's an incident oftentimes triggered and catalyzed and precipitated by something Netanyahu might do, like what happened recently at the last eruption, right, with the riots. And then there's a flare-up. Rockets are launched. Riots take place. 
people are killed. And then the IDF is activated, goes into action in various formats, drone strikes, F-15s, Hellfire missiles, and then maybe even an invasion if that's necessary. The window opens for aggression. Kids get blown up on a beach. Hospitals are blown up for collateral damage. But it's a small window, and it's taking place in that moment when the lawn needs to be mowed. The lawn is mowed. A bunch of people are killed. 10, 100x on the Palestinian side compared to the Jewish side. And when the smoke clears, most of the rockets are gone. The tunnels are burrowed in. The situation, again, goes to a state of tense but acceptable equilibrium. And then we wait. We wait for a week, six months, two years. Tension builds. There's a riot. There's an explosion. There's drone strikes and missile launches and maybe an invasion. And then the the lawn is mowed and then we come down. It's a never-ending war of attrition that's based on an untenable strategic foundation of how a state was created. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it's going to change, unfortunately. And going back to your question, yes, it's fueled by ideology. And it's yes, it's fueled by this religious fight. And yes, it's fueled by tribal hatred. But I look at it even more rationally in the sense it's fueled by strategic expedience. And, and the, the, the simple reality that a two-state solution will ultimately lead to the end of Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, the wicked son speaks. But to mm-hmm. me, this, this, this is screamingly obvious. And American yeah. Jews, here's another paradox just to, to tail off on that. With our platinum spoon in our mouth, with our middle-class lifestyles, with our Hebrew school, with our token gestures of, of charity and goodwill to the disenfranchised, we pump billions of dollars into Israel. We build forests. We invest in startup companies. We just give, give, give to Israel. And why do we do that? Well, because of this generational tribal identification with the promised land being our destiny. And um, why do anything different? Is it bad that we do that? No, I'm not being judgmental. And I'm not saying that Israel doesn't have a right to exist. I'm just being as rational and objective as I can in terms of of my feelings as to how things came to be. And the, the kind of tragedy of a lot of these paradoxes, which is a lot of people are suffering. A lot of people are going to continue to suffer. And to what end? Mm-hmm. To what end? is is all of this there's an interesting connection between the state of israel and christian fundamentalists that want to bring about the end of the world yes i love this topic by yeah, the way yeah can you yeah. tell me about about a little yeah. bit about that yeah my best example of this i could find the clip on youtube we can maybe put it in the comments later is okay. george bush was asked <clears throat> as the iraq war was building up there's a journalist who tossed out this question he goes You know, Mr. President, some people believe that you are aggressive about, you know, protecting Israel and then going to war against the axis of evil because you believe 
that Jerusalem needs to be protected by the Jews for the second coming of Christ? <laughs> that was the question, almost like that. And George Bush stood there at the podium and he just kind of blanched. And one of the late night comics, I think it was Jon Stewart at the time, he has the, the clip behind him and then he gets outraged and he goes, come on, just answer the question. Just say no. <laughs> so to, to answer your question, yes, big time. Uh, there, there's a, a huge trend on the part of evangelical Christians. There's a really strong belief that the reason the state of Israel exists in God's plan is for the Jews to protect Jerusalem in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Even though and Jews don't believe in Jesus as a Messiah. Oh, they, they don't care. Look at Mike, <laughs> Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee is the classic embodiment of this sensibility. He goes to Israel several times a year. He's buddy-buddy with every level of that society. And he's a fundamentalist evangelical Christian. The essence of his point of view isn't that he loves the Jews. He finds the Jews God's stewards for the second coming of Jesus. And I think, again, George Bush believed in this. Uh, there's a whole dispensationalist angle to fundamentalist Christianity that's fascinating. And they're pro-Zion because Jesus is coming and they want to make sure that when he lands, it's kind of a clear landing strip. In stark contrast, there's an organization called NK and they're a bunch of Hasidic Jews and they believe the opposite. You can look them up. NK. <laughs> okay. So they, they started in like the late 30s and they are so anti-Zionist that they're Orthodox Jews who actually supported the PLO financially. And their mentality is the exact opposite, which is because of the Messiah, right? When that second coming happens, it's not the second coming of Jesus, but it's the arrival of the Messiah as predicted by Ezekiel and everybody way back when, that's when the Jews get Israel back. So they think that this entire 1948 Balfour Declaration, State of Israel, is blasphemy against the will of God. And they'll do everything to short-circuit and torpedo Israel as Hasidic Orthodox Jews because they think we only get the, the promised land after the Messiah hits. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, so wow. these cultish notions, it's like absurdity leads to atrocity. And absurdity also leads to just J.J. Tolkien, fantastic bullshit fucking stories that have endless variability. And people believe this shit. That becomes their worldview. And since it's all arbitrary and it's all made up anyway, based on pure fiction, rock and roll, believe in whatever the hell you want with whatever implication and then take it through. 
And it's all really unfortunate because it just leads to a lot of suffering and doesn't really provide much benefit to the world is, except for you exercising the belief that you know everything and that you're going to go to heaven. So this is this is a problem again, you know, when um, was it Hitchens that said religion poisons everything? It's it's not just a belief. It's just not just an arbitrary belief. It's actually converting into foreign policy and you know decisions that are actually affecting people in the real world um and you know isis has the same sort of thing as well isis or other similar groups that they they want the day of judgment to come they're like trying to implement the the yeah. the signs of the day of judgment which of course the day of judgment i mean we've been waiting a long time and it's it's not coming. <laughs> you know, the Prophet Muhammad said, you know, Anna wasa atain, something like that, meaning me yeah. and the hour are like this, like, and he held yeah. up his fingers. That was 1400 years ago. So I don't know how much longer we're going to wait. Well, but, the, the end of days is a, is a great myth. Jung, Jung would call it an archetype. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to just reboot the world. The heaven descends, hell erupts, and everyone gets what's coming to them. It's the ultimate assurance that we are not mortal, we are immortal, that, that if we do good works, they will be rewarded. And it brings a sense of closure and eternity, and it, and it eliminates fear. Nothing is more terrifying than the notion that not only you're going to die, but regardless what you do, there's no accountability, both good and bad. And the Messiah myth and the end of times is the final affirmation that we are our souls are immortal that will be rewarded for good works and that the bad people we know will be punished and that all will be made right with the universe forever and ever pretty pretty good <laughs> pretty pretty reassuring so heaven is hard to understand it's way easier to feel that like heaven comes to earth that like comes down to us and then you can have all the cool shit you want you got your xbox you got your sex toys. You got everything that you've had, and and heaven will be here. It's it's arriving. It's not going to be too different than it is now, but it'll last forever, and you'll be absolved of all guilt, and you could really have a good time. That's yeah. that's that fuels the whole thing, and unfortunately, yeah. it makes people crazy. And it's hardwired into Israel, mm. the notion that the Jews deserve it, that the Jews are protecting it. And uh, and tough shit doesn't matter what they do. We got to look at the big picture, guys. Look at Jesus. Jesus is on his way. He needs <laughs> a, a nice, clean, well-lit <laughs> landing strip. I don't know why that would be the case because he has like superpowers. Like he could just come and I none mean... of it makes any sense. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the idea was we're going to send all the Jews to Madagascar. That was considered. Uh, Hitler, oh, that sent, was considered. Hitler sent his envoys to talk to the Arabs about what to do with the Jews and oh. basically gave them the assurance that you guys could have Israel, you know, the, the promise. Madagascar? And then, oh. you know, well, well, we'll kill the Jews or we'll just get rid of them. We'll send them someplace else, right? There's, there's always been this notion of, of what do we do with the Jews? And Israel is a, is a triple punch, whiplash, whiplash, Chuck Norris, you know, roundhouse kick to the face to the whole world in a sense, which is we're reclaiming our promised land. We're going to nuke up and we're here to stay. And fuck you. That's it. We, we got it. And it's that sense of determination and tribal spirit that that fuels a lot of this it, it's the essence of mammoth's point of view i think again not to speak for him is that 
of course I believe in God. And of course I believe in the Jewish God. And of course I'm a Zionist because to do anything else is to betray who I am as a person. And if I betray who I am as a person, then I'm a useless, filthy human being who's internalized the hatred of the world. Okay, Dave, <laughs> I, um, I, I get you. You're a very successful guy and you're the kind of guy who's highly competitive and you tap into an instinctive essence. But if everyone felt that way, which most people do, we have the clusterfuck of the world as it is today, which is riddled with tribalism, contention, genocide, suffering, and really an unwillingness and incapacity to really come together. Do I agree with Steven Pinker that the world is a much better place generation to generation? I unequivocally do. So I'm not a doomsayer saying that we're all screwed and that we're, 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 we're diving into the deep. I think everything from education levels to rates of, of poverty to health and wellness are all increasing and we're doing pretty good as a species. But the thing that's really holding us up, the glitch, in the human matrix is exactly what we're talking about here, which is, that's what I'd say, Dave, I get what you say. You're a proud Jew. And to be anything less than a proud Jew is a betrayal to yourself and your people. I get it. But the problem is everyone kind of feels that way. And if we all feel that way, it results in a lot of the mess that the world is enduring. And can't we just take a couple steps back? I'm not saying Israel doesn't have a right to exist. I'm not saying that the, that, the, that the Jews are infused with this paradox and then are confused. I'm saying that, yes, let's just be a little bit more rational and objective about it. Let's assign responsibility when it's due. And then let's try to look for a more hopeful and holistic future yeah. where a lot of this shit doesn't matter anymore. It's bullshit. The mythology is either a lie or constructed to control people, or even as a Jungian expression of these archetypes, but their usefulness is behind us. Mm -hmm. How are yeah. we going to survive and flourish as a species? And it ain't like this. Yeah. You know, in India, we have the same issue where India used to be very pluralistic, very, you know, Muslims and Hindus and everything, but now it's very much um, identity based, you know, you have the majority, majority of Hindus are voting against, like, if you look at a far, you know, they have a far right government that is actively, you know, going against Muslims, right? And this is a big problem because, well, Muslims are, are the minority. So the democracy would work well if people are not all voting in terms of their own self interest, but are voting based on values, like right? good values, right? But unfortunately, like what you're describing, what, what he was describing, being a shitty human that's where all that's what's happening in india they're all saying the same thing and therefore well screw the muslims right and you know there's there's i mean that's beyond the scope of my understanding to to discuss but there's a lot of bad things happening in india right now for the muslim community there yeah. they are a lot of them are pretty nervous about the way things are going and you know it's it's tragic that it's gone from what used to be very pluralist pluralistic to what it is now where you know, there's gangs that are beating up Muslims, accusing them of kidding. You know, Muslims don't even eat beef in India because they know it's dangerous, right? So they have other stuff like bison or whatever. But they're still accused of kidnapping cows and the government's like looking the other way. They're like, you know, I don't know. I didn't see I didn't see that. You know, I didn't see that happen. And they're beating up, you know, there's so many bad things happening right now. And um, Eka Toll, um, do you know Eka Toll? 
Yeah. Yeah. He has a book called The New Earth where he talks about this thing about we need to evolve past this tribalism, past this. We need to get to a new consciousness where we can, you know, we, we are not going to survive as a human species if we continue behaving this way. You know, it's all. Yeah, all... I don't think it's any more complicated than that. You know, there are about 15 million Jews on planet Earth of 7 billion plus people. It's about 0.2%. And we make we yeah. make a lot of noise. Jews are news, <laughs> and and because of Israel too, it's it's a it's a it's a locus of of attention. And oftentimes too, and I'll be the first to admit, it's a disproportionate amount of criticism. You've got every hotspot from Somalia to Miramar to the Uyghurs to uh, what have you throughout the world, Yemen. And everyone's always obsessed about Israel. So if Israel farts, everyone goes nuts. And it's based on a lot of the anti-Semitism and a lot of the bias in this Jewish brand that we've been talked we've talked about. We simultaneously yeah. control the world and yet we're horrible people. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, so through that lens too, um, what what can the Jews do and then how can we share and then how can we learn to try to make the world a better place through the unique vantage point of really not having a country of really being displaced people throughout the generations of using this opportunity of our outsider status to gain perspective. And that advantage has helped us disproportionately excel and is the root in turn of a lot of jealousy and anti-Semitism. Look at all the Nobel Prizes. Look at, yeah. look at yeah. all the businesses. The startup capital in the world is Tel Aviv. There's always the Jew, right? There's the C-suite and then there's the Jew. There's the scientist, the politician. And then people get a little suspect, right? Like, why, <laughs> you know, there's your 0.2% of the population and your 30% yeah. of the boardroom what's yeah. going on elders of zion right <laughs> but yeah. i think what's really going on is the advantage of getting your ass kicked fighting for what you need and want surviving adapting and doing what it takes to protect yourself your family and try to make life better yeah so the other paradox here and the positive note to everything we're talking about is Jews have a unique perspective in terms of being able to survive, thinking on their feet, empowering their families and friends, creating the networks and going out there and doing what they do, not only to survive, but to flourish. Mm -hmm. And my, my appeal and the reason I'm here isn't to criticize the Jews or Israel but to be more hopeful about the opportunities and insights implicit in this unique Jewish perspective of being the outsider, yet somehow managing to burrow inside, be successful and influential, and add positive value to the world, not just a source of never-ending strife and discord. But to really add value and make the world a better place. Is there something about the Jewish humanistic perspective that has lasting value that other religions can learn from in terms of separating ideology and identity 
and politics? Yes. And can we finally just have a reasonable conversation? Not so much about what's better for me and my tribe, to your point, but what's better for the species and then how we can all get along and just yes. move forward a little bit more rationally without flaring. And it's yeah. no better time than here in the States because we're amazingly partisan, fragmented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to... I want to jump in there for a second and because you mentioned a lot of really good points before you add anything else. Um, what I want to say is I don't want to always speak uh, or, you know, say something I shouldn't say, but there's nothing do. Why? Why do I mean, I understand the, you know, the history of the Holocaust and all that and how terrible it was. But like, for example, me, I, I have Indian ethnicity. I'm almost I'm, I'm 97 percent Indian and Pakistani from that area, according to my genetics. But like, I'm Canadian. I've now assimilated, you know, for all intents and purposes. My family lived in Kenya for several generations. Before that, it was India for God knows how long. And now I'm in Canada. Like, I don't, I have no real connection to India other than maybe the food that I eat, some of the food. I don't, I don't even speak the language. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm happy. I'm proud to be Canadian. And from my perspective, you know, what you're doing, where you're living, you're an, Amer you're an American born in Born in America, right? Oh, yeah. Born in America, just, just born in bread. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, like, why do the Jews need their own state? It doesn't need to be a Jewish state. It should just be a state. Israel is a state, just like any other state in the world. It doesn't need to be a Jewish thing, right? But it's connected very much, you know, part and parcel with the Jewish identity. But that's maybe that's a bad thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's the essence of Mamet's point. If you're Jewish, you de facto are a Zionist because you're part of the tribe. And unless you're a wicked son and need to go to hell or be informed, <laughs> then uh, you're betraying yourself, your people, your identity, if you're not unequivocally in support of Israel, too. That's part of his criticisms of Noam Chomsky, where mm -hmm. Noam Chomsky dissects the imperialist Jewish state. Right. He's the ultimate wicked son in Mamet's point of view. He's the intellectual liberal. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Harold yeah. Harold Pinter, who was yeah. uh, who was uh, a mentor to David Mamet, went in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, railed against Israel in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, these wicked sons are all about. But, you I, know, yep. you, you make a good point. And the answer is, I don't really know. And, and to Seth Rogen's point, what was the logic of taking this people that everyone hates and then putting them in the area of greatest contention in the whole Sound world by enemies. and expecting it to work out seamlessly, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I really don't have an answer to this. And to, to be honest with you, this is the bigger question of Jewish assimilation and the future mm, of, yeah. of, of the culture, of the identity. Is yeah. the world a better place with Jews? I don't know. Is the world a better place with um, uh, Muslims from Kenya? Is the world a better place <laughs> for a bunch of Cretans on the island over there eating olive oil and fish? Is the world a better place for Finnish black metal death rockers? Is the, is the world a better place for Swedes, for people living in Tuscany? The world is a diverse, very originated, fascinating place of which these these nuances and variations in ethnicity and in, in genetic diversity and culture 
it's wonderful. I love the foods of the world. I, I, I think that it's awesome that we embrace our differences as much as our similarities. I don't want the Jews to go away. Yeah, absolutely. I like being a Jew. Yeah. But, but to your point, is it contingent on Israel? Well, it's almost like that it begs the question of Israel just being there. Yeah, you got, yeah. you got all the thermonuclear weapons that 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 you need to annihilate a hundred million people. So <laughs> I don't think I don't think they're going anywhere. No, and 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 so I don't know what, what, what Israel good, bad, ugly. I guess all of the above. But the fact that they're there. there, how do we yeah. move forward in a way where they don't have to keep mowing the lawn? Yeah, and we all get along. Here, here's another interesting thing too, and I think it's an adjunct to what you're asking. It's like. The Israelis are always fighting with the Arabs about getting recognition and also getting the Arab states around them, ostensibly all of their enemies in this yeah. existential threat matrix, to, to accept the fact that they have the, the validity to exist. Israel often says that we cannot sit at the negotiating table with people who deny our right to exist. And part of me, I think, why? Why is that an underlying prerequisite and criteria? I have a career and I'm on calls with people who want to deny my right to exist. <laughs> they, as a colleague, they might find me irritating. They want me fired from a project or, or they just really don't like me. That's just the nature of doing business. Yeah. We both understand that, which is you don't like me and I don't like you. I hope you get fired, but I just have to deal with you. Let's move forward. Yeah. Or competing so, companies, right? It, like you, you yeah, make even competing companies. Yeah. yeah. It's the Darwinian frothy mix of contention and fighting and backstabbing. And it's just the reality of doing business. It's the reality of communicating. So whether or not you believe Israel has a right to exist, it's not going anywhere. And whether or not you think it's a good idea or that it was founded on good yeah. or bad strategic principles, blah, 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 blah. The, <laughs> it's too late, the, right? It's too late. Yeah, so just yeah. sit down with people who hate you and deny your right to exist. That's not going to change. Your, 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 your backpack full of thermonuclear weapons aren't going anywhere either. And they yeah. know that. So let's just have a conversation. I think that's what I'm trying to get at here, which is stop the bullshit, stop the hypocrisy, and get at a viable and tenable way forward, both personally in terms of your own development and collectively and politically, which is how can we get along a little better? I know that sounds really naive, yeah, kind of woke in its own way, but it's at least a start if you begin with the notion that it's my tribe against the world, that my identity, my religion, and my politics are one, and they're immutable, then there's no path forward. I just think it's endless war. And the babies are suffering, and there's no need for it. So, you know, there's a couple of really important points I want to bring up before we end. One of them is when you said, what can we learn from, from the Jews? And I think this is actually an important point I missed earlier, which is I see the future of the Muslim community going in the direction that the Jews went. And, and what I mean by that is I see more cultural Muslims. And I think this is a good thing. The fact that you can have someone that is Muslim, but they don't believe, that's not really a thing right now. 
you can't 100%. really do that. It's not accepted. I I know this right. one of the trail one of the trail one of the trailblazers in a community goes by the name of Hassan Radwan, and he tried to found to to create this meme of an agnostic Muslim, a Muslim that's agnostic, and it just didn't work. People were kept asking him, "What do you mean agnostic Muslim? How can you be agnostic and Muslim?" Even though that it makes perfect sense, you're a Muslim. I mean. Frankly speaking, my parents are agnostic Muslims. That's exactly what they are. They're agnostic right. theists. They're Muslim, but like they're skeptical. They're like questioning. They're like, they don't believe everything. They, they'll they do a lot of things they're not supposed to do. And when you ask them, they'll be like, well, God's merciful or something, right? So they're like, you know, they they believe, but they're not, they're kind of, you're not sure, I think. I think, yeah. right? So yeah. I think that's a great thing. I think, and I think Judaism or the Jewish community has that. It's like, yeah, you don't believe, but you're still Jewish. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want the Muslim community to accept this. And I know, I know in China, this is also a thing where Chinese Muslims are like, yeah, they eat, some of them, they drink beer, they, but they also pray sometimes or they don't pray. And that's not an issue. But over here, like in Canada and Pakistan and your Muslim countries, it's, you can't, there's no such thing. It's the scene is mutually exclusive. Either you believe and you're Muslim, or you don't believe and you're not Muslim. There's there's no overlap, right? So I think this is great. I, I think this is what the Muslim community. I think this is what's gonna happen. And you know whether and some yeah. people think Islam is gonna go away. I don't think so. I don't think Islam is gonna. Yeah, go away. That, that's the learning. You don't have to throw in the towel on your identity and your culture, and it's not the end of the world. It's it's not like you assimilate into oblivion and everything that you know and love about the habits and the food and the people and your friends and your family are gonna go away. Uh, it's a key point that Ali Rizvi makes in his atheist Muslim book. So we go to a shameless plant. If you haven't seen it, check it out. He brings out this point, and he also cites the Jews as an example of, of being, able to, being able to balance that sense of humanism and globalism and secularism, but also with, with this idea that, hey, you know, you could, you could argue your atheism at the bagel shop with somebody who talks with their hands and just saw the Broadway show. I mean, be a Jew, knock yourself out. Yeah. Uh, be a Muslim, knock yourself out. But if you just get over all the bullshit and the, and the, and the baggage associated with a lot of this ideology, you get over the manipulation and then you have an opportunity to embrace everything that's great about yeah. your food, your people, your clothing, your music, your conversations, everyone you know and love. It's not like you got to leave the tribe, embrace the tribe. We just need to redefine what tribalism is. Yeah. How it, and how it, how it holds itself together and ultimately how one tribe relates to another. Because if you it Epcot Center. I remember I had a I had a friend who said, "Why go to Europe? You could just go to Epcot Center." <laughs> Right. You have a bringing together of of all these cultures and everyone loves that diversity. Who doesn't? The biggest yeah. racist in the world loves <laughs> ribs and fried chicken. <laughs> yep. Listens, so, listens to rap and R&B. This yeah. is what brings the unit. The, the world comes together in a celebration of our diversity, the sauciness of something exotic and foreign. It could be in the form of a lover, a meal, a music, uh, anything. We're, we're Just as we're programmed to hate each other, 
We're programmed to embrace what's exotic. We find it sexy. We find it yummy. We, we find it exciting. Let's, let's celebrate our differences without the trappings of all of this ideology. Yeah, and absolutely. Give each other a break. So, a couple last things, and then we're gonna close off. Uh, thank we you have for questions. The... Anyone ask ask questions? Yeah, yeah. So, thank there? you for being so patient during this uh, conversation and for sharing your thoughts. A lot of great comments. People saying that you're a very lovely interviewer, uh, interviewee, and guest, and uh, do appreciate it. Now, a couple of questions. One of them was from my friend Sharik. He's here now. He was asking about Jew Jewishness as um, is it a race? Is it an ethnicity? Yeah. Is it because you have you know different Jews from different parts of the world, but they're still considered to be one race? So how do you, how do you take yeah. that? But Here's another big paradox. Who, who is the two people who kept saying the Jews are a race? And that's the Jews and Hitler. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Now, how did that work out? Not, that <laughs> Not very well. So epi epigenetics, uh, the, the, the racial genotypic foundation for human behavior and, and expression. This is so complicated. We had three races. Now I guess we've got five. The Jews like to refer to themselves as a race. Just unequivocally for the record, race is as mythological and contentious a subject as, as even the religion. Uh, what we're finding, the more and more we understand the human genome, is the level of diversification, of complexity between the, the nucleoside sequencing, the protein creation, and then ultimately the expression physically of who we are and how we behave. And this whole conversation about race related to identity is not only a dead end, but it's extremely dangerous. So I, I would just unequivocally say that not only is, 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 are the Jews not a race, but race itself as a construct, as a word, might not even have much meaning given what we're learning about human genetics and, and biology and biochemistry. So are the Jews a race? No, I think that I mean, I did 23andMe, as I described. I'm 97.2% what they call Ashkenazi Jew. When you see the heat map, it's all sent, located in the area of Hungary and Eastern Europe. So con conceivably, the test is good enough to identify geographic location of the genetic diversity that my genotype embodies. But it's what we said before. The same rules apply to a fisherman in Crete or the black metal guitar player in Finland. It's like whenever you have isolating pockets of humanity and you have, you put limits on interbreeding, the genes self-select and then they kind of diversify and they become their own thing. Is that a race? What does that even mean? Are the Jews genetically distinct than, let's say, that Finnish black metal player or, uh, you know, or uh, uh, a farmer in Burgundy? Of course, we're all genetically diverse. We're all variable. Is there something special about the Jews? No, it's the same kind of distribution that you find for people in, in self-isolating or isolated communities where they create their own kind of diverse pool of distinctive genes. But that doesn't mean anything, I don't think. And it doesn't really have repercussions for, for the, the epigenetic mythology of, 
you know, our, 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 our future and our identity is tied to our nucleoside sequencing. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, think, actually, I think it's way more complicated than we even imagined. And the whole notion of race needs to be thrown into the garbage. It's yeah. Danger, dangerous and, and, and a, a, a way people use, manipulate yeah. and use people. I think um, we are we're all like 99% uh, I think 99.9% .9 of us have the same genes. It's like, we're like really splitting his. his. Yeah, yeah. I think we're only 2% two, 2 different than chimpanzees. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seriously, yeah. I think chimps yeah. are like 96%, 97%, 98%, more or less the yeah. same kind of code, you know, so yeah. much for the chimp brain. Yeah, depending and, on how you calculate. Yeah. Um, and, I then, just and, and then I'm sorry, real quickly too, yep. it's like, it's very rare for a disease. Like I think like, Hodgkin's lymphoma or something mm -hmm. where one one gene error leads to this phenotypic oh, yeah. phenotypic expression of an illness or a disease. Similarly, when you say someone's smart, they're creative, they're sexy, they're talented, they're a moron, uh, they like spicy food, what have you. It's rare, if ever, that you could really identify this high level trait or behavior physically or otherwise with a particular sequencing of code. It's, it's usually a holistic kind of aggregate of, of, of your, your, your sequencing, but also, you know, your own biology. So we got to get away from this notion that we're hardwired into certain behaviors based on just genetics. Yes. And we certainly need to get away from this notion that there's any inherent difference. Are there inherent differences that that express themselves? I mean, are Kenyans better long distance runners than Jews? Yeah. Yes. They are. <laughs> are Kenyans better than Jews or Jews need to be killed because they can't run marathons as fast as Kenyans? No. Come on. I mean, yeah. can we walk and chew gum at the same time? Yes, there yeah. are differences, but do these translate in intrinsic worth? And is it no. gives us a right to subjugate or to mistreat people based upon these these statistical tendencies? No. Come on. Let's grow up a little bit. Yeah. And that that doesn't mean that we can't um help certain groups that are disproportionately suffering. For example, black Americans may have, you know, certain issues. But I don't want to open up the can of worms right now because we're close to the end. And I know you'll have a lot to say about that as well. Yeah. Um let last thing I want to talk about before we end is um Palestine, something about Palestine and Israel, which is really interesting. It's been pointed out by people I love as well, such as Hassan Radwan, which is how is it, you know, in the Muslim community, Palestine is a rallying cause, a rallying cry. It's even though people like me have nothing to do with Israel and Palestine, I supported Palestine because it's a Muslim thing. Again, it goes back to the dogma. It goes back to the fact that this is some holy land. There's something special about this. And unfortunately, what this means is that you have and you have this one issue, which, okay, there's human rights issues there as well. And we've talked about that and we've addressed that. But the human rights issues in other countries, for example, Myanmar, for example, Chinese oppression of Muslims, for example, yeah. Saudis bombing Yemenis, Saudi and yeah. Yemen. Muslim, Muslim, you know, Pakistanis and Ahmadis, you know, Pakistanis um, oppression from the government level of oppressing the Ahmadis and, and going after them and persecuting. Like none of these things get any airtime in the Muslim community. I mean, they do. They do. I mean, they do. But 
order of magnitude the palestine issue is like way up there oh hell yeah 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 it's, you know? it's the classic wedge issue all right if you look back at american political history abortion no one cared about abortion until it was literally made an issue by the right to galvanize conservative support among the base and expand their political power so I'm not downplaying the suffering of the Palestinians. I'm, I'm not saying that it's any less or more consequential or significant or horrific than the other hotspots throughout the world. But I will categorically agree with you that a disproportionate amount of media and airplay and attention, remember I said the Jews are news, by pointing out the suffering of the Palestinians, the Arab world and pretty much the rest of the world reinforces and continues the story of the Jews are not only news, but the Jews are a pain in the ass. The Jews have got to go. So I just think that the rationale is it's a thorny subject that really ignites all Arabs around this rallying cry that the Jews need to be pushed into the sea and then we need to reclaim the promised land. And I think that that's just objectively true. I think that that it's the lingering anti-Semitism and it's the lingering feeling of the illegitimacy of the Jewish state. And it's part of the narrative that, that reminds everyone of that fact and further energizes it. To your point, look at Yemen. Look at all the crises that are going on through them. I mean, look at what happened in Syria. The Syrian civil war was the most bloody, brutal internal conflict probably post-World War II. Unbelievably savage. I haven't heard anything come out of Syria. Assad's still there. The Russian bases are there. No one talks about it anyway. No one talked about it hardly when it was happening except for the refugee crisis. From a humanitarian point of view, how does that compare to the West Bank, Gaza? I'm not one to draw comparisons. And once again, I'm, I'd be the last person to belittle the plight of the Palestinians. But it's obvious what's going on, which is fuck Israel. Let's talk about the Palestinians. And that's, I think, just objectively true. And it also lends fuel to Mamet's observation that we need to defend ourselves, that everyone hates the Jews. And again, it, it fuels this self, self-fulfilling cycle of aggression, defensiveness, existential threat, and nothing Israel does is bad because, look, everyone hates us, and they're always going to side with the Palestinians because that's all that's being shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Well said. And uh, I think on that, we will end off. I'll give you the chance to give any final words. You were saying some beautiful things about, you know, moving forward as humanity, you know, not not focusing on identity or race, but on, you know, making a better world for I I love I'd love to hear your final words on this on this um, topic. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share. I I hope that the, the viewers learned a few things and got excited about a few things. And, and most significantly, I hope that the, the takeaway ultimately of our conversation is, is optimistic and inspirational. Is you've got a diversity of opinions. Uh, the Jews and every other group aren't such a monolithic 
entity of a single point of view that that we've got a lot of disagreement and contention internally i'm sure the muslim community is like that as well as most others and there's an enormous opportunity for open dialogue like what we're doing here to to make the future of humanity a little bit more holistic full of less suffering and more opportunity for people and I think it helps ultimately if we could throw the shackles of our tribalism to the side. With all due respect to Mamet, my my hero and my anti-hero, I, I just think that his notion of the wicked son and this idea that if you criticize your own people and that you don't blindly embrace the ideology and behaviors of, of, of a struggle, that you are betraying yourself and you're betraying your people in the world. I think we need to overcome that. We, we need to just look at everything with fresh eyes and we need to take this opportunity to just have open conversations and shed ourselves of the dogma that got us into this situation in the first place. Stop looking back, look forward, and look forward, forward in a way that is simultaneously, and, and here's, I think my key point, simultaneously inclusive and yet respectful of our wonderful human diversity and differences. Uh, I'm good friends with Faisal al-Mutar, who's, who's a, you're, you're familiar with too. He's an Iraqi refugee. I joke that uh, I'm tall and he's short. I'm fit and he's fat. He's an Arab. I'm a Jew. He's like half my age. And America is a place where you embrace and celebrate the differences between people and can't imagine two more radically different upbringings and sensibilities and we get together and we laugh our ass off talk shit about everybody and go biking in brooklyn and to me that's what it's all about we're just people we're 99.9999 percent genetically pretty much the same and we just shoot ourselves in the foot with these legacy beliefs and these instincts that command us to hate each other and, and fear someone who's different from us. So I know it sounds kind of wokey and, and cliched, but I think we're getting there and we're getting there with opportunities to openly discuss subjects like this. And I want to thank you again for the opportunity to uh, be able to be able to do that. Let's continue the conversation and I welcome feedback and maybe we could have another session after the smoke clears and, and people weigh in and we could uh, take it. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and maybe bring in a third person, which is someone who uh, still, mm. still believes in this or wants to duke it out because I think we're in violent agreement with most of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the problem of uh, yeah. inviting, getting to yeah. choose people to invite. And also it's easier to find people that are like-minded to invite on the podcast because mm. we get along and, you know, we tend to find each other because of yeah. the yeah. Yeah. and yeah. Well, we bring and on like We bring on Sean Spicer and it'll be a different kind of conversation. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to bring on, you know, other people as well. It's just yeah. you tend to find people that you resonate with. And I definitely resonated with what you said today. I definitely resonated with, you know, your your goals for the future, the fact that you are able to, you know, criticize Israel for the wrong that Israel does and also, you know, acknowledge that it's not, you're not saying Israel doesn't have a state, doesn't have a right to exist. You, you're able to reflect on the fact that, you know, dogma is 
is made up at the end of the day and we you know we need to get rid of the most harmful parts of it and you know look at look for better dogmas humanism to me is a dogma but it's a better dogma it's a dogma that values everybody for you know being for existing not not based on you know group membership or anything like that right so i i resonated with what you said and thank you for coming and having this conversation you know you're a wonderful person to speak with and your views are refreshing i uh, hope there's not too much negative backlash to what you said and you know i appreciate you coming going out of the being the bad son you know it's it's not an easy <laughs> easy thing to yeah. live up to you yeah, know, it's it's yeah. it's it's difficult being different and going not towing the party line, and you know, um, obviously sometimes facing social repercussions for that. And you know, I've also gone through my social repercussions for doing what I do. Um, and yeah, so thank you for that, and to everyone that joined, thank you for joining the stream. And uh, those of you who are live today, and those of you who missed it, um, feel free to watch the replay on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform as the friendly ex-Muslim podcast. So you can look yeah, it up on your send, favorite. Send the link, send the link. I'll share it as well for people who missed it. And it's been great being your uh, friendly, hopefully friendly, <laughs> friendly, friendly Jew. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Appreciate it. And um, those of you who, who want to support the channel, please share the video. Um, the link is going to be the same link that you're watching now or also on the podcast. You can just look up the podcast, leave comments on Twitter, share with five of your friends or on Facebook or any other platform. Leave a comment in the description. All of that helps. And also, if you can afford to support the channel financially, please do join on Patreon or become a channel member. Click join now below. Your support helps to pay for this content to be promoted, processed, subtitled, clipped, edited, all of that stuff. You know, um, there's only so much one person can do. So I do have people helping me that I pay money to. So if you can't afford it, that's okay. That's fine. Those of you who have continued to support the channel, John, John Stopman, Rada, and uh, everyone else, D uh, was, you know, and, and all the other Patreons as well, uh, patrons who haven't won here today, but these are the names that come to mind. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll see you at the next live stream, which will be the epileptic profit part. I think we're on part six now. So stay tuned for that. And and Mookie, stay well, stay safe. And, uh, you know, I hope this Rona thing is done now. And you Yeah, can be I feel better. <laughs> yeah, see, there's a little bit of brain fog. I glitched maybe every once in a while, but I'm back with a vengeance. So, and just as a note, uh, you know, vaccines work. I'm, I might have been in the hospital without my uh, Moderna shots. Oh, yeah. So get, I'm going to do a little plug here. Don't believe we're, we're overcoming the dogma and bullshit of religion on this channel. Overcome the dogma and bullshit of the anti-science. Um, get, <laughs> yeah. get vaccinated, get your booster and believe in it. And uh, we'll all get through this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. That's it up then, folks. And we'll see you around. Uh, take care. Bye for now. Take care. Thank you.